This episode contains allusions to sexual assault and descriptions of suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. If you or someone you love is struggling with suicidal thoughts or the impulse to self-harm, please seek help. The United States National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. The following is from The Furnished Room by O. Henry. Restless, always moving, forever passing like time itself are most of the people who live in these old red houses on New York's west side. The people are homeless, yet they have a hundred homes. They go from furnished room to furnished room. They are transients, transients forever, transients in living place, transients in heart and mind. The houses of this part of the city have had a thousand people living in them. Therefore, each house should have a thousand stories to tell. Perhaps most of these stories would not be interesting. But it would be strange if you did not feel, in some of these houses, that you were among people you could not see. The spirits of some who had lived and suffered there must surely remain, though their bodies had gone. Hi everyone, I'm Alastair Murden, and this is Haunted Places Ghost Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Ghost stories have arisen from every century and every corner of the world, from the streets of Victorian Whitechapel to the temples of Japan. Whether seated around the campfire or curled up with a pair of headphones, we return to them time and again to feel our skin crawl and our hearts race. Episodes of Ghost Stories are inspired by classic short stories from some of history's greatest authors. The following version is our own unique take. It may feel familiar in some ways and different in others. We hope you enjoy it. You can find episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free exclusively on Spotify. Today's story, The Furnished Room, was written by turn-of-the-century American author William Sidney Porter. Porter, more commonly known by his pen name, O. Henry, authored almost 400 short stories over his illustrious career. Like much of O. Henry's work, The Furnished Room is set in New York City. And this story is specifically set in Manhattan's Lower West Side. The tale begins when a young man comes to the city in search of his lover. Our version begins a month before this young man's arrival. I will narrate this story as Mrs. Martha Purdy, the proprietor of a lonely boarding house. Mrs. Purdy was perfectly happy with her job until one day a mysterious tenant turned her placid establishment into a den of horror. Coming up, Mrs. Purdy can ignore her tenants' lives, but not their deaths. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. 
the impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. My dear Mrs. McCool, I'm afraid you won't see much of me any longer. After nearly 20 years, I'm leaving my post as a landlady. I'm happy to see the last of 109 Washington Street, though I'll dearly miss our late-night gossip. Sharing our mutual frustrations over unruly tenants was a bright spot during a very dreary time. But I'm not writing to reminisce. As a landlady yourself, I think you may benefit from lessons I've learned. Therefore, I must leave you with a warning. Like you, I believed our tenants did not need to know the history of the buildings they lived in. I tidied the stains, darned the torn sheets, and quite literally swept anything unsavory beneath a rug. But, my dear friend, I have come to realize how wrong I was. What a man doesn't know can hurt him. In fact, it can kill him. It all began two months ago. The surly old couple in room 13 moved out with only a day's notice. Truthfully, I expected it. They were theater people after all, you know the sort. What I didn't expect was that they'd leave the room such a mess. Trash covered the floor, powder speckled the vanity, and a perplexing red mark stained a cushion on one of the chairs. I did my best to spruce up the place, but it didn't matter much. Most of my tenants didn't stay for long, and a passable room would do for most. So rather than agonize over the chair, I simply flipped the cushion. As I was on my way back downstairs, the front door chimed. I opened it to find a ragged young woman waiting on the steps. She was a delicate thing, with tangled red-gold hair and a large mole beneath her left eye. She reminded me of a lost dog. Perhaps she had once been loved and cared for, but her shiny coat had certainly lost its luster. She introduced herself as Ellie and asked if I had any vacancies at the house. I consider myself an empathetic woman, but there's no such thing as charity when you run a business. And by the looks of it, this woman could not afford a room. But as I was about to shoo her away, I smelled her perfume. It was sharp and clean, nothing like the tawdry yellow oil worn by some of my boarders. I recognized its floral notes as mignonettes, a small white flower that grew along the country roads of my childhood. I looked her over again. If she could afford such a fine perfume, she must have something to her name. Or at least, someone who could pay her way. And so, I beckoned her inside. As we started down the dark corridor, I noticed her grimly take in the tattered carpets and peeling paint. While I pay cursory attention to the rooms, I do not bother at all with the hallways and stairwells. There's no need to make them beautiful for those who only pass through. Though, when welcoming new tenants, I certainly don't mention the home's faults. Quite the contrary, I recited my usual speech. This place used to be the Whitley Mansion. They are a very prominent family. 
they still own it, so truly, you should count yourself lucky to have found an opening at such an establishment. They expect tenants to pay the rent on time and treat their property with respect. Are you employed? Ellie said she'd come from upstate to be a singer. I felt a twinge of trepidation at this. It isn't easy to find work in the theater. When I told her so, she quietly said, I know, but I had to try. It's better than living someone else's life. His version of a happy ending. As a rule, I don't get involved in the lives of my tenants, so I dearly hoped this young woman wasn't searching for my input. Luckily, she continued. I can pay you through the end of the month. I nodded briskly and pulled out my ring of keys. Room 13 was a bit dreary. Its single window faced a brick wall, its furniture was stained, and the old bed frame was missing two of its knobs. But the gas worked. Ellie's face fell as she stepped inside. I narrowed my eyes and said, It's a good room, and you won't find a better one. She smiled sadly and said she'd take it. Over the next few weeks, I saw Ellie leave each morning crisp and hopeful. But when she returned in the evening, she was soot-stained and exhausted. It became clear that she was nothing more than a country mouse, and country mice don't often survive the big city. But I found myself hoping she would. I was organizing the boarding house's books one afternoon when there was a knock at my door. It was Ellie. She nervously asked to stay a week on credit. She went on, I've been doing my best to find work. I've looked in plenty of theaters, the Savoy, the Palace, the Olympic. I frowned. This poor girl was misguided to think she could waltz into the upper echelons of city entertainment. So I offered her some generous advice. Those are nice theaters. Perhaps you ought to think about a different class of place. Ellie's face fell. I heaved a great sigh and found a scrap of paper. I never interfere on my tenants' lives, but I felt an urge to help this girl. I suppose I was softening in my old age. I gave her the address of a theater and told her the proprietor was a big name in vaudeville. I said she was lucky I could connect them. In truth, he was an oily man without much clout and not particularly kind, but he always has work. Ellie thanked me profusely. She promised she'd go to the theater right away. I was getting into bed that evening when there was another knock at my door. I grumbled and reluctantly made my way to answer it, ready to tell whoever it was that I was retired for the night. It was Ellie again. But this time, her hair was mussed and her skirt was torn. The buttons on her blouse were done up wrong, as though she'd fastened them hastily. She wouldn't look me in the eye, but I could see she'd been crying. Before I could question her, she shoved an envelope into my hands and hurried down the hall. I could hear the faint sound of hiccuping sobs as she went. In the envelope was enough money for a week's rent. I closed the door and set the money on the bedside table. I was sorry to see her so upset, but that was the hard reality of life in the city. One needed thick skin to survive. 
Three days later, my tenants complained of a terrible odor near Ellie's room. As I climbed the staircase to check on her, I was hit by a rank, pungent smell like rotting meat. But as I got closer to the room, I detected the acrid stink of gas. I coughed. <laughs> Pressing a handkerchief over my mouth and nose, I then flung her door open. A nauseating rush of fumes hit me. Ellie lay on the bed. One arm dangled off its edge and the other clutched a small glass bottle to her chest. Her face was grey and a white film covered her blank, open eyes. My pulse raced. She'd done this to herself. I rushed to the gas lamp on the wall and turned it off. For a moment, the room was eerily quiet. A clatter came from behind me and I whipped around to face the bed. The bottle that Ellie had been clutching had slipped from her fingers and was now rolling across the floor. I picked it up. It was a small bottle of perfume. When I turned it over, I saw an engraving. It read, From Alexander, you and me for the rest of our lives and after. As I read those words, the smell in the room changed. The reek of death was replaced by the sharp, clean scent of mignonettes. But I didn't know where it came from. The bottle wasn't cracked, and its cap was screwed on tightly. I dropped the bottle and whipped around at the sound of something behind me, the low creak of a foot on the floorboards. But there was no one there, only the dead woman laying in the bed. The floral scent grew stronger, making my head swim. I had to get out of this horrible room. But as I made for the door, I heard a faint noise. It was another creak, followed by faint, hiccuping sobs. My breath caught as I realized I wasn't alone. Coming up, tragedy lingers in room 13. Hello, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we're the hosts of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. You may know us from the very creepy and excellent podcast Red Handed, but now we've teamed up with Parcast for an unprecedented look at history's most nefarious groups. Some preach extreme religious practices. Others warn of impending doom. And then there are those whose endgame is far more diabolical. Every Tuesday on Sinister Societies, we take a peek behind the curtain and discover the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have known. Learn how entrepreneurial sects made fortunes off their brand, how charismatic cult leaders caught the eye of celebrities, and why strange orders of the extraterrestrial or collegiate kind attract the most unlikely of followers. Some groups convene in the shadows, others operate in plain sight. All are absolutely sinister. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like a gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. 
eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Now, back to the story. My skin crawled as I looked around room 13, trying to find the source of the faint sobbing I'd heard moments before. Ellie was dead. She'd taken her own life. So why did I feel as if she was standing beside me? And why, in this room that reeked of death only moments ago, did I smell her perfume? I heard another creak of the floorboards. Suddenly, I felt choked by the dense scent of mignonettes. I ran from the room, coughing, and didn't stop until I was safely back in my own apartment. I sank onto my threadbare sofa and tried to catch my breath, but I couldn't stop trembling. I sniffed my sleeve. I could no longer smell the scent of mignonettes. Instead, my clothes smelt distinctly of gas. The mignonettes must have been my imagination, I told myself. I'd been so horrified by Ellie's corpse, my mind must have conjured up her scent and the sound of her sobbing. There have been suicides in this house before. In a place like this, it can't be helped. In all honesty, my tenants were frequently unhappy people. There was nothing I could do about it. Still, guilt clutched at me. I remembered Ellie's torn dress and her tear-stained face. Perhaps I should have inquired further. I pushed the thought from my mind and stood. I reminded myself that this was a business There was a corpse upstairs, and I had quite a long to-do list. At my request, the coroner took the body through a back exit. A corpse, after all, is bad for business. Once they were gone, I braced myself and ascended to the third floor. My heart raced as I approached room 13. I opened the door, bracing myself for the musk of death, but instead, I was hit with that unsettling perfume again. My skin tingled and I had the urge to run. It was so unnatural, so much worse than any kind of rot. But I gritted my teeth and stepped inside. This room could not sit empty. I cleaned as quickly as I could, frantically scrubbing every inch of the place. But with each swipe of the mop, The smell seemed to grow stronger. And then I felt someone's fingers lightly graze my shoulder. I spun around, but I was alone. My trembling hands snatched the mop and bucket and I took off like a shot. Several days went by and no one came to inquire about a vacancy. I'm usually eager to find a new tenant, but in this case, I was relieved. I hadn't stopped thinking about that scent or the touch on my shoulder. I was dreading the day I would have to return to that godforsaken room. But I ran a business and the choice was not mine to make. So when a young man arrived asking to see the place, I obliged. His name was Alexander and I could tell from his rustic clothing and coarse manner that he was not from the city. He even smelled like the country, like fresh-cut grass and a hint of cow manure. As he followed me to the third floor, 
I tried to give him my usual speech about the house, but my mouth was dry. A flurry of nerves rolled through me as we approached room 13. I took a deep breath, bracing myself for that horrid floral smell. But when I opened the door, the mignonettes were gone. The only thing that hung in the air was the altogether ordinary must of an old house. I breathed a giddy sigh of relief and declared, It's a good room, and you won't find a better one. He glanced around disdainfully, and for a moment I worried he wouldn't take it. I reverted to my old tactic, assuring him we'd had some very elegant tenants of late. The last couple worked in vaudeville. The man's eyes brightened at that, so I continued. I said we often had theater people stay, some of them quite famous. He nodded and said he would take the room for a week. As I turned to leave, the young man spoke again. I've been looking for a young woman I believe may have been here. She's a singer in the theater with reddish gold hair and a black mole beneath her left eye. Her name is Eloise Vashner. A cold sweat sprang up on my palms. He was looking for Ellie. I thought of the perfume bottle she had clutched in her hands and suddenly remembered the message engraved on the glass. It said, from Alexander. And this, no doubt, was that same young man. My tongue was heavy with indecision. If I told him what had occurred in this room, he might tell others. The boarding house's reputation would be ruined. So I did what I always did. I swept the truth under the rug. I straightened up and looked the young man in the eye and told him I had not met anyone named Eloise Vashner. It was somewhat true. After all, I'd never known the girl's full name. She introduced herself as Ellie. Alexander nodded sadly and I departed. But as I neared the staircase, I heard a yelp from the end of the hall. I froze in my tracks. It was Alexander. I reluctantly walked back to room 13 and pushed the door open. There it was, stronger than before, the wretched odor of mignonettes. My stomach twisted. Alexander stood by the bed, his eyes wide. Do you smell it? I shook my head, trying my best to keep calm. He pulled me deeper into the room. Surely you must smell it. It's the perfume I gave Eloise when I told her I wanted to marry her. She left for New York the next day. She said she had to follow her dreams, but I know if I find her, she'll come back with me. Are you sure she wasn't here? What about the couple? Did the woman have a mole below her left eye? My heart sank at his grief. Perhaps I could tell him about Ellie without revealing where she died. I could pretend I saw her jump off a roof or into a river. But before I could say a thing, I saw something that made my blood run cold. A shape slowly moved on the bed behind him. It was covered by a sheet. But as it rose, I saw it had the contours of a woman clutching an object to her chest. I was too shocked to scream. My eyes sought Alexander's, hoping that he too saw this bone-chilling sight. 
but he simply stared at me, confused. A moment later, the bed had returned to normal, the linens neat, as if they hadn't been touched at all. I backed away, my heart in my throat. Alexander asked me if I was all right, but all I could do was murmur an apology and rush from the room. That night, I lay in bed, unable to sleep. I thought about the exhaustion on Alexander's face, the haunting shape on his bed, the dreadful mignonettes. Finally, I fell into a restless slumber. In my dreams, I stood in a field of beautiful white flowers. They were so lovely, but when I leaned in to smell them, the putrid scent of death filled my nostrils. And then, from the dense flower bed, a pale hand reached out to grab my wrist. I shot awake to discover it was morning. My sheets were damp with sweat and my pulse raced. I couldn't let this go on. I was tormented either by my guilty conscience or Ellie's ghost. Either way, I had to tell Alexander the truth. I climbed to the third floor and stopped dead in my tracks. I smelled flowers. I hurried to the room, dread knotting my stomach. I held my breath as I pushed the door open. The first thing I saw was the shimmering haze of gas in the air. Then I saw him. Alexander lay just as she had, on the bed with his arm dangling off its edge. And clutched in his hand was a small bottle of mignonette perfume. After Alexander's body was taken away, I couldn't bear to enter room 13 again. So I hired a few local boys to clean and dispose of Alexander's things. When I asked them if it was difficult to remove the smell of death from the room, they gave me a strange look. One of the boys replied, It didn't smell like death at all. It smelled like the countryside, like flowers, cow manure, and fresh-cut grass. So, Mrs. McCool, perhaps now you can understand why I've given up my post at 109 Washington Street. I'm sure I'll find something else, maybe tailoring or factory work. Whatever it is, it will not be housekeeping. I can't sweep dirt under the rug anymore. The Furnished Room was published in 1906 as part of William Sidney Porter's anthology of stories called The Four Million. The title was in response to an op-ed piece by the New York Times that claimed there were only 400 people worth knowing in New York City. Porter's anthology told stories about the four million who inhabited the city. Porter was never a wealthy man. He was generous to a fault and had a hard time holding on to money. Even after becoming a successful author, he still found himself living hand-to-mouth which means the dingy boarding house of the furnished room is a place the author would have known well. 
The decrepit old mansion is located in an area that was once home to the city's wealthiest families. But in Porter's time, the brick buildings of the Lower West Side were falling apart. Their affluent owners cut them up into apartments before dividing them further into furnished rooms and hired women, like Mrs. Purdy, to manage them and collect rent. But as the value of the properties far outgrew the money that could be earned from tenants, many were torn down for new real estate. In the furnished room, Porter places his characters in a setting of neglect, managed by a landlady who is not uncaring, but as demoralized by her dismal surroundings as her tenants. Like the crumbling walls of the building she cares for, Mrs. Purdy ignores her own eroding humanity, until one day it collapses all together. Thanks again for tuning in to Haunted Places Ghost Stories. We will be back on Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast free exclusively on Spotify. See you on the other side. Haunted Places Ghost Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Haunted Places Ghost Stories was written by Zoe Louisa Lewis, with writing assistance by Kate Murdoch and Alex Garland, fact-checking by Audriana Romero, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Alastair Murden. You aren't supposed to know about them, unless they want you to. Powerful groups with their own very specific agendas. And if you find yourself on the inside, good luck getting out. Hi, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Join us every Tuesday for our new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. Whether it's doomsday predictions, deadly greed or world domination, Each week, we're exposing the beliefs and actions of the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have known. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.